0: Hello, and welcome to the Voice of the People. I'm your host, Kenneth Frye. Sr. I love enough to tell you the truth. And I respect enough to give you facts. I'm just... This is Saturday afternoon. It's beginning to cool off a little bit. And I'm sitting on my porch, uh, in the hood, of course. And just reflecting upon my life... As it relates to, uh, to current events that I'm experiencing now, I guess it's safe to say that I've been around a while. I was born in 1953 in a rural southern town in South Carolina, goes by the name of Barnwell, South Carolina. During that particular time. Um, my mother gave birth to me in an all-black hospital uh, in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And uh, the town of Barnwell is about 35 to 40 miles from that black hospital. And so we were very proud. And also we were in a very good position during the time in 1953 to have an all-black uh, hospital. Uh, That was a time, if you can recall, segregation was a way of life, uh, which was legal, sanctioned by um, the church, sanctioned by the government, state and federal and local. And uh, black folks, uh, we we will see I was born into that, into that. Um, we were not, um, uh, how shall I put this, um, in 1953, I was fortunate to be living in a neighborhood where my grandfather lived across the street, my uncle lived behind me, he had a black dentist live beside us, uh, we had a home of modest means, um, uh, I remember my parents uh, remodeling it as best they could. But things were uh, okay. You know, when you're born into something, you don't really compare it to anything. But I do remember that I had an uncle who had a farm. And we always had a garden. So we always had okra, fresh tomatoes, butter beans, spinach. Uh, rapes, mustard, always had uh, field peas. You know, all of, all of our vegetables were out of the garden. I remember that uh, most everybody had some chickens of some sort, of, and and the family members who friends who lived you know outside of town we had pigs, goats, that type of thing. The folks grew watermelons uh, Peaches were abundant in the area. Scuppernongs, plum, bullets—you know, fig trees, pear trees. So you know, so food was not something that you gave a lot of. Uh, I mean, you were secure in that. Uh, everybody was cooking, and so, as I recall, I think I was in high school before I had my first encounter with fast food for eating. Uh, cheeseburger out of a restaurant, so, you know, prior to that, everybody, you know, ate food that was cooked, and the culture that we had, you, they would prepare a meal for you and you would uh, eat what you were given, and if not, they would wait until you had an increased appetite, then you would be more eager to consume it. But you know, it was, uh it was pretty good. Uh, I uh, hear my parents and folks in the community, in the church, um, talk about segregation, oppression, and the KKK and law enforcement was something to be feared because we were. You have to remember during that time we were not represented on law enforcement. We were not uh, able to serve as jurors. general sessions, court, very much like a lynching mall with a little bit of formality to it. But I do recall um, working at an early age. We, um, I guess when you're about four or five years old, you always had chores around the house. You had to raid the yards, do stuff like that. So a work ethic indirectly was placed you know, upon you, and all the kids that did that. We thought it was abnormal if you didn't have chores to do. And so the kind of custom we had was, you know, a lot of people, um, because of the error that it was in, any child that was unruly or unmanageable, there's a good probability they would get killed by the police or some white mob, or they would cause um, hardship for the family. So how could a child um, cause hardship? See sometimes uh, we forget. Um, the history and what was really happening now. What I remember in a small town, we had a grocery store. Um, there was no such thing as credit, there was no such thing as credit cards. So most of the black folks had come out of a, a culture of sharecropping, um, out of the 20s and 30s and 40s. And sharecropping basically meant that you worked on some white man land, or if you owned your land, you bought supplies. and. They charge you so much for it at the end of the year, whatever profit you made was eaten up into your expenses, and so it was like you could never, never get ahead. It was a a sharecropping is another form of slavery, and um, I used to hear my grandfather talk, and he would always say that debt, being in debt, was a form of slavery. And so uh, my father was uh, a unique person. He was a World War II veteran, and he had five or six brothers. And he was very personable. And uh, back then, all the men had two or three jobs. I think my father worked as a courier or a chauffeur for the Millican Mills. And so, but his other job was he would uh, help his brother farm watermelons. Um, we had a little joint. My uh, mother had a little restaurant. And my father my father used to sell fresh fish out of the back of his car. He would go to Augusta, Georgia to this fish house and every week, I think on a Thursday. And so I would ride around with my father who would know, sell fish out of the back of his uh, car. So that, you know, so when I grew up, every, every man had two or three jobs, you know. So surviving and striving was just this this part of our, our custom. And um, all of the men, um, it wasn't too much uh, classism because, like in the fifties and the sixties, you know, the, the only entrepreneurs in town was you know we had an undertaker, you had somebody that owned a nightclub, and you had the the barbershop. I had another my same uncle who farmed in the country he he had the, he owned the barbershops you know in the black community the owner always sits in the first chair so I had an opportunity and we had a a, a black minister downtown they called it the alley and I was as a kid I was shine shoes in my uncle's barbershop and listen to the men tell the war stories and uh talk about life and talk about the struggle. Uh, Interesting enough, uh, during the late 50s and 60s, from from my personal vantage point and what I saw, uh, my father has two or three friends who were ministers, and they worked in the plant as well. So all the men worked, you know, and most pastors... Passion was a part-time job for them. Their main job was, you know, where they fed their family it was in, it was in the factory or on the farm, that kind of thing. But uh, it wasn't a whole lot of talk about uh, prosperity. Uh, it wasn't a whole lot of talk uh, about theology. Uh, most of the men I knew, uh, they talked about or being a decent man, being a good man, that basically meant taking care of your wife and your children and your household and doing the best you can under the circumstances that you find uh, that you found yourself. But uh, most of the men that I uh around as a kid, they were strong men, they were decent men. Uh, it was a segregated town, of course. I had the privilege, because my father owned a joke joint, at an early age to learn how to shoot pool and had to learn how to gamble, so uh, so starting very early, I was used to hang out at the joke Johns in the pool hall, and I would always be around uh, men talking, and I learned just a protocol about the hierarchy of respect and staying in the in your place based on your age, uh, and so. But I was a, a pretty good uh, pool shooter, and so uh, that that came to be to my benefit as I got older. Because when I was in high school, you know, uh, working in a factory you know, ain't no joke. Uh, hit, sit, uh, walking on the cement floor, trying to outwork a machine. Uh, the machine wins every time. And so that was a ex- extreme motivator for me to want to leave that immediate environment and have a different kind of life. And what supplement, supplemented that desire was I was, you know, I used to go visit my aunt and uncle in Camden, South Carolina. I went to Atlanta City one summer, and my grandfather, who of course used to take me to Columbia, South Carolina. And that experience that stands out to me is that I had never seen housing projects and apartments two or three stories high. And I found that so fascinating that those people could live together and not have a yard. See, I came from a rural South Carolina where everybody had a shack, but everybody had a, a yard. They had boundaries that were yours. And so I found that quite interesting. Which and down in the rural area, though, growing up, um, all the young guys, men, we all were... Uh, as rights of passers, I think it's about age 10. We were always working the, in the field, watermelon fields, cantaloupe fields, ochre fields. I mean, so we we had a lot of physical jobs. And um, during that time, if my memory serves me correctly, all of the black men were into baseball, okay? All I heard about was Jackie Robinson, you know, so that was a sport that black men that could play We had the Negro Leagues. And so every small town had their own team, and it was Saturdays and Sundays, you know, everybody was playing um, playing baseball. So that was a source of entertainment and a source of hope. And everybody was into, you know, boxing because a lot of black men were successful in boxing. So we would listen to the radio. And uh, what I enjoyed a lot growing up was, um, I because I lived in town, I could walk about seven yards and and is to the nightclub or the joke jungle, whatever you call it, and it was always interesting to hear the music and to see people um, just mangle and and just try ways to cope with the position that we were in. Um, see, black folks in America, For my experience since 1953, life has always been a struggle Second-class citizenship has always been, always been something to tolerate, nothing to, to, to celebrate. Um, we've always had to hope and pray for the impossible. Um, so and so and so, church served as a great opportunity to talk loud, to sing, to tap, just to be among ourselves. You know, that's that institution of church serve served a lot of purposes. And if I I can recall, you know, the church folks and the joint folks and the folks who didn't believe and the folks that believed, we were all, all together. Uh, We celebrated each other on a whole lot of levels. We had an extreme tolerance for one another, Um, your grandparents. Great parents, your parents, the young folks—it uh, was a lot of role definition. You know, everybody kind of knew your place within the black community. Uh, we were trained as children. This is interesting as I reflect back. We were trained to—we uh, knew who the enemy was. The enemy was the system and, and white folks. Yeah, so you would. Everybody was trained to the lives of white folks, because they were the enemy, and most black folks I know had a personality that we that we, that we we had in our community, we had another personality we put on a mask when we went among white folks, okay. And uh, I remember, I guess I was like sixth or seventh grade, my father was a member of the NAACP, and I would always go to the NAACP meetings with my father. And you know there was never a lot of folks in the community that supported liberation on any level. There was a uh, there was a level of this is how it is, and it can't get no better. Or we don't deserve any better. And I think part of that was because we were exposed. To the good and the bad and the ugly as it relates to leadership in the black community. And back then, most of our ministers were called. What does call mean? I mean, they, those who could talk and could dress up a little bit, you know, they would, they would entertain us, you know. Because I, I remember, because I lived in a rural area, we only had church one Sunday a month. And most preachers, if they could dress pretty good and talk pretty good, they would have, they would put four churches together. To have one church, I'm talking about salary-wise, so um, a pastor might go to church A on the first Sunday, church B on the second Sunday of the month, and church C on the third Sunday, and um, on the fourth Sunday, there's another church. So how that worked out was, if, if I went to church on the first Sunday, then the next three Sundays we would just have Sunday schools. And so that made it possible for deacons and trustees really ran the church and your pastor was just a, a hired, uh, hired, he was a speaker. Uh, but the deacons and the trustees ran the church, and most of the small churches were uh, a cluster of five or six families, you know, and so in small churches, families run the church. And then when, they, when there was a disagreement, then the families, they would, you know, break up and start another church, so. You can go to the rural area, or the urban area in the black community, and there's an abundance of churches. Because when would break up, you know, churches just multiply. Because traditionally, um, it was a part-time job, and then the ones who were good, they would. Uh, it's kind of like the Chitlin' Circuit or the minor leagues, as they develop their skills how to speak, and how to judge the audience, and how to motivate, and how to provide comfort when there's death, to provide comfort when there's no hope, and just to provide a a general sedative to our second-class citizenship. And as I reflect back, um, it was always... um, Mostly women, not all women, but half of the women went to church, half didn't. And of the men, about 20% of the men went to church, the other 80%, you know, did otherwise. But nobody would have a conversation about that, and it just was okay, you know, it's, it really didn't matter. We are all in the same boat. We all lived a life of pain. Of discrimination. But we found a way, we scratched out a way to have a little hope. Uh, you know, in the South, uh, a lot of folks, their only hope was to move North, you know. So I know in the 50s and the 60s, um, the way systemic racism worked and, and the control of the Chamber of Commerce and all the jobs, white men were in power. And so, You know, you, anybody that had an opinion that was articulated, they became verbal and they wanted to be a first-class citizenship, most families would ship you off, uh, out of town to protect you from being murdered, lynched, shot down by the police, or wrongfully arrested and incarcerated. Or they had another mechanism of social control. If you thought that you were a 1st line citizenship, they would say that you were crazy, and then they had and the probate judge. They could always send you away to the crazy house. So you see things back, back then, very much like things are now, just a little more sophisticated. Now, as part of my story is I went to uh, all-black school, and I think I went to school a year early in first grade, because my aunt was a first grade teacher. And of course, you know, gave me a little social capital, so they eased me into school a year early. So, um, and I went to, uh, and back then they used to beat us in the hand. The principal, was under control of the of the white Department of Education. Most of your principals back right then were not educated. Then I had an aunt that had a she was what you call a gene supervisor and they used to go around the state in the rural area helping to educate uh, the principals. you know, most of the principals were male, you know, we you have to understand, even back in the 50s, if you have racism, then you have sexism. You know, and then, and so I had an uncle who met a gene supervisor, and she came from a kind of educated, well-to-do family in Camden, and so he would go to Hampton University every summer uh, to get up to speed, and he... He became a principal and uh, had an all-black school called Diamonddale. that went fourth to sixth grade. But as, as years moved on, I mean, that's the history of public education in, in the South, in the rural area in the 50s. And I knew a lot of men that were educated but still, you know, because of systemic racism and this blatant uh, discrimination, could not get a job no matter what their degree was. I I remember uh, with state government, as early as the 70s, a white male with a GED was considered equal to a black male with a Ph.D. How does that sound? That's right. Uh, A GED, white male, with about five years experience, was considered equal to a black man with, with a Ph.D. with one year experience. Now, a lot of that stuff kind of happens um, now in a lot of, you know, around our country. The standard is so high just for opportunity for a black male or black woman and for a white male or a white woman because of systemic racism, because of classism, because of the kind of country we have, they can be um, inadequate not up to speed, but their whiteness would be accepted. And they will undergird them with protections, and so they, they get a pass because of their whiteness. You know, so that's, that's, that's the world through the eyes of a child in the 50s and the 60s. And then when I was in seventh grade, I think it was 1964 65, because my parents were affiliated with NAACP, they had early immigration all around the state, and in seventh grade I went to all-white school, and uh, that was different. Uh, my father took me to the principal's office that day and told the principal, you know, keep an eye out for me, but, you know, I I come from a strong neighborhood, a strong family, uh, had been exposed to the NAACP, had been exposed to work, uh, had been around the joke joints, so I had a, I saw the world through the eyes of a 7th grader, but really, I had adult eyes. So they put me in, in all white school. They had a system of classism where the affluent whites, you know, upper-class whites to be in Section A. And they would filter the other whites through the other Section B, C, and D. And the, the best white teachers was always with Section A. And so in essence, the white all-white public schools in the rural South, they were educating about 30% of the white population, about 30%. And then because they had control of everything, and then uh, they controlled the banking, all all the skilled laborers, so uh, the white girls and boys who didn't have any aptitude for academic achievement, they would always they would give them a position as supervisor over smart blacks. I'm going to repeat that. Uh, whites of a limited academic prowess, because they're white, one, whiteness, were always given supervisor position over smart blacks. You know? So the smart blacks would do the job, and then the, the white person would be given uh, power over them. Power on whether they could keep the job or not. So you have, you know, so that's uh, that's the country we live in. I'm talking particularly now about what I know, which is rural South Carolina in a small town. And so, uh, so I I felt fairly safe in the all-white school in Section A because most of those kids were not. They were not angry. Their parents were affluent. They were the the number one stakeholder in the community, so they didn't have no problem with um, a couple of blacks here or there. And, uh, but during that time as well, mo- most of the whites um, that were not in the private school, in the public school, uh, they began to develop through their churches, uh, private schools. So you had a, a exodus of white students from the public school but it was mostly the kind of middle class whites but they weren't upper middle class whites because the upper middle class whites controlled the school so they their kids you know had a free private school which is section eight and so uh, we went through that experience and uh, i played a little football played a little basketball and because of my background and working in the watermelon field and all that. Uh, I was a pretty good athlete, and I was fortunate enough to have a coach in seventh grade, Colonel Hunsucker, a retired Air Force colonel, white male. And he taught us basketball as an art. And he taught us about the principles of basketball. Uh, it was kind of like teaching math, he taught us the angles. defensive strategies, the offensive strategies, and that type of thing. And so I had a pretty good foundation, and um, by being an athlete and living in the black community, when when the kids played, we didn't have any supervision. So when you don't have any supervision, the the big boys, older boys beat you down so bad. But if you survive that, you're pretty good, so through that process. Uh, by playing basketball with the older fellas, everybody knew that, hey, this one here is tough, so they toughened me up. And so I became uh, tough. And I had a work ethic and I developed uh, some defensive skills and some offensive skills. So, you know, by local terms, uh, I was a pretty good basketball player. Then, Then I had the fortune of going to Atlanta City I think the summer between my ninth grade, freshman year in high school and my sophomore year in high school, I went to Atlanta City for a summer on the boardwalk. And that's when I was exposed to quality basketball, street basketball, or urban basketball. And they had a YMCA, a black YMCA. And that is when I was able to compete and really see that on a lot of levels I was good. And I was a superb athlete. And um, with the urban basketball, you know, you have to, if you're going to get some points, you got to go ahead and get them, you know. They were not into team sports, passing, and setting and picks. How I was trained <laughs> in junior high school, I was trained, you know, basketball was a team sport and that kind of thing. But when I got to urban basketball, and it was like, man, you got to get your own, you got to get your own rebound, you got to steal the ball yourself if you could play good defense and get a steal, and if you got the ball, you know, you couldn't give it up. You know, when you got the ball on offense, you take that ball and you make a shot for yourself. You know, and so you had a lot of practice on being playing one-on-one. And, you, you know, and so, because I had been taught the fundamentals of angles and math, so I was able to incorporate that into an urban game. And when I was in Atlanta City, I think that was in the 60s or maybe 68, 69. Um, I saw a lot of basketball players from uh, around the country, but they was from Norfolk State, and I used to watch the college guys play. And so I I knew that the no-look pass that Magic Johnson, people talk about Magic Johnson, you know, I knew that came from Earl the Pearl. <laughs> so, you know, Earl the Pearl, if you're a god, you know, Nate Archibald, Earl the Pearl. You know, uh, Earl the Pearl was, you know, the first thing we've ever seen close to a gold charter, but in legalized basketball. So I was able to see a lot of the tricks of the trade that summer. So I came back my tenth grade year, and um, I was. Uh, I had an exposure greater than most other players. Plus, I was 6'1", and playing point guard. And back in the 60s, you know, point one was kind of tall for a guard. Because even during high school, I had the white coaches always play me at forward. You know, by being an athlete, it didn't really matter to me. I just loved the game so much. I would run around, get steals, get a rebound, make assists, shoot shots, block shots. No big deal. Then I had the fortune of uh, the summer before my senior year, I went down to the Citadel to a basketball camp and uh, I made the all-star team as a point guard so I came back my senior year uh, that's when they fully integrate the schools and uh, my first exposure with learning about booster clubs and special interest group and the power of parents and also we had a tradition in our high school to play Dixie at the Pat rally so you know uh, that summer when I became an all-star point guard at the Citadel and they offered me it's, it's a scholarship uh, my self-worth kind of magnified itself so I knew that I had some leverage so I I refused to participate in a pep rally, playing of Dixie and I walked out and most of black students is a fallen name and so I guess I was labeled as, as a renegade and then we had a new basketball coach for the high school and we had our first basketball meeting. He told me that I would be playing, you know, forward, and I told him that I just I just made all-star team as a point guard at the at summer that I'll be playing point guard. And his response to me was, if you play at all, son, boy, whatever, you'll be playing what I tell you to. And my response was, if I play at all, it'll be um, point guard. And he told me, when you off the team? You know, is he kicked me off the team, so I left the team, you know. But several days later, the principal brought me back to the basketball practice and told the coach in front of the whole team that I was his point guard. So I guess I won that battle. You know, and I had a pretty good year in high school. I guess I averaged triple-double the whole season. I was kind of like a uh, Westbrook. I played that style. I think I was a little more smoother than that, but anyway. I got arrested two or three times just for demonstrating obviously the white coach blackballed me you know that type of thing so it was it was my intent to go to the to the service after I graduated high school because I knew I was gonna leave that town but um, they had a, a a coach from the black school that came over there. Donald kid he was a capper and he he knew about HBCUs, so he told me and two other fellas uh, to go down to Talladega College the weekend for a tryout on the basketball team. So we went down there and, and, and brought the college team out one Saturday morning. We scrimmaged, and after about ten minutes, the coach, you know, pulled me aside and told me that I had, a, you know, I had a full ride to Talladega College to play basketball, and full ride. Meant, you know, financial aid or whatever it took is to finance my education. So I was a- able to escape small-town segregation and systemic racism, and I was able to go to Talladega College in Alabama, all-black, HBCU. And it was during that experience that I was able to heal. I really didn't know how much emotional of of trauma that I had been subjected to. Of the impact it had had upon me, but when I got in that all-black environment and I had a cafeteria, and black folks with PhDs—I had never—I had never been around black middle-class kids, and everybody just seemed so happy and and just so normal, you know. So that was my first time experiencing peace, safety, and security. So you know, so I—I I had a pretty good time. I had a little social capital to play basketball. Uh, in high school, um, because I was isolated and emotionally traumatized, I did a lot of reading, and I did a lot of time management, and I was able to live within myself. I didn't need any praise. I didn't need any acceptance. I didn't need to be validated. I was self-contained, and so you know I did pretty good in, in my schoolwork because I had discipline enough to study, to read, and time management. So that's how I escaped uh, poverty, systemic racism, Um, in a small town in South Carolina, rural, um, down near the Savannah River Plant, where the joke is you either die from radiation or starvation. But I just had to uh, tell a little bit of my story. Um, Sometimes you have to look back where you come from. And uh, so I've always considered myself fortunate to have a father, to have a grandfather, to have an uncle, to have a small community where there's tolerance and everybody uh, emphasized your strength and they just tolerated your weaknesses. And so we were able to nurture one another. And uh, I was able to escape poverty. And um, that's part of my story from 1953 to 1975. I'm your host, Kenneth my Sr. I love enough to tell you the truth, and I respect enough to give you the facts.